Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists and food makers, farmers, authors and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. A very good weekend to you food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. I'm so glad you've joined me. Because this show is a continuing celebration of food and the role that it plays in our lives. Tune in and you'll explore everything about food culture, the science, the history, the backstories, the deeper meanings that come together every time people sit down to enjoy a meal. This is a place for people who love to eat and it's my goal to make your dishes come alive with flavor. I talk food and health, wellness, wine, cocktails, trends, tech, and fitness to fuel your hunger and satiate your soul. So stay tuned because there's delicious conversation in your radio all throughout this hour. If you happen to have missed a show, you can find podcasts on iTunes under Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. And my website at chefjamie.com has been revamped to make you a better cook. So please check it out and let me know what you think. And I hope that you'll become a fan and a friend on social. On Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, you'll find my daily dish at Chef Jamie Gwen. And with that said, let's dig in, shall we? I can't express enough how important I believe it is to know your ingredients. So at the start of this show, I offer a tutorial of sorts to make you the smartest and best cook you know. And today we're getting tipsy. There's a celebration because this is your guide to mezcal. Now, mezcal is a distilled spirit associated with tequila, but far more complex in flavor. All tequilas are mezcals, but not all mezcal is tequila. To put it simply, tequila is a type of mezcal since any spirit made from agave is classified as such. And mezcal is having its day in craft cocktails and bars and restaurants across the country. So I wanted to make sure that you were a mezcal aficionado. Here's the down low. The word mezcal means oven-cooked agave. And like tequila, mezcal is made by roasting agave in an oven. The roots of mezcal and tequila stretch far back in history, before Europeans arrived in the Americas. And agave has been cultivated for centuries. It's been used as a flavoring, as a sweetener. Um, It's been fermented into alcoholic drinks that date back at least 2,000 years. When the Spanish arrived, they brought along the knowledge of distillation, and lucky for them and us, they found a plant, that is agave, whose juices they could readily distill, and therefore tequila's ancestor was born. The first mezcal, which by the way arrived before tequila uh, in the history books, It actually appeared in the 1500s, and it spread throughout Mexico over the following centuries, and then it was eventually exported back into Spain. Now, mezcal can be produced in seven Mexican states, but most mezcal available in the U.S. today is from Oaxaca, where lots of wonderfully delicious things come from, by the way. And mezcal, like tequila, starts with agave. However, unlike tequila, mezcal isn't limited to to just one variety of agave. There are five different varieties that are commonly used, 
and Mexican regulations allow for many others as well, interestingly enough. But 90% of the mezcal is made from this Oaxacan variety. And there's one thing to look for if you become a mezcal geek, and that is a product made from Tobala uh, variety of agave. This is a particular variety of agave that grows wild at high elevations in Oaxaca. And it can be cultivated, but the wild version is said to taste better than anything else. And there's only a small amount of Tobala available annually. And so for that reason, the price is a bit higher than traditional mezcal. Um, It's supposed to be a little bit sweeter and considered a little bit earthier and exceptionally delicious. Now, with tequila, uh, the same as mezcal, the agave is harvested after about eight years. And the heart of the agave, which is called the piña, is cooked over wood And they cook it for two to three days. And the process caramelizes the natural sugar in the agave. And it imbues a smoky aroma and a flavor to the agave, which carries over to the mezcal, which I believe is the greatest attribute of mezcal. It's that smoky, luscious, uh, you know, fire-kissed flavor that you get from your barbecue or smoked salt. And now it is and certainly not new by any means, but being mixed into cocktails and we're tasting it again today. Now it is that smoky, luscious, tequila-esque flavor that we crave. It reminds some of a single malt scotch, interestingly enough. And like tequila, mezcal is sold as either 100% agave or misto. And I recommend that you look for the words 100% agave on the label because you are getting a a far superior product. Now, as I mentioned, Mezcal is having a moment. According to 2017 statistics from last year, Mezcal sales have doubled in the previous four years, last year alone. And the obsession is really sort of boosting Oaxaca's economy, which I think is wonderful. The spirit is very popular. People are actually opening bars dedicated to the stuff. Uh, In San Francisco, they have more than 100 different bottles of mezcal at uh, a tasting bar called Mezcalito. And you can taste a flight or a handful of cocktails. In D.C., there's a menu curated by one of the world's only master mezcaliers. In New York City, there's a bar that has three levels designed to evoke Oaxaca in the Big Apple, of all places, of course. And so it really is having its day. And I think it's really important, as I mentioned, to be knowledgeable and up on your spirits and up on those ingredients that we know and love and embrace and use in our cooking. So I wanted to share my favorite cocktail to truly appreciate mezcal. It's a mezcal Negroni. And you substitute mezcal for gin in this take on a traditional Negroni and you get this smoky note that that is really luscious and still maintains the simplicity of a Negroni. You take a glass and you combine Campari, Vermouth, and Mezcal. Then you fill it with ice, stir, strain into a, a glass that is filled once again with fresh ice. And then I rub an orange zest around the glass's rim and I squeeze it into the drink and I serve it. And well, cheers to you. (laughs) It is 
so delicious. And as we embark with this spring season uh, just come through and summer on the way, I think a smoky cocktail is on the menu. I'll gladly share the recipe and background information on Mezcal for what I like to call unnecessary dinner party conversation, or so at least you have something to talk about with the person next to you. You can always email me for recipes, insight, and inspiration heard on this show. I answer all my e- emails direct, and you'll find me at jamie at chefjamie.com. It's J-A-M-I-E at chefjamie.com. And that is your Mezcal tutorial, and now you are in the know. Okay, time for food news this week. Oh, this is cool. And just released insider info. So listen here. Do you love Spotify? Well, wait till you hear about CKBK. CKBK is the Spotify-like service for discovering new cookbooks. And while you should tune in every Sunday to this show so that you can gain knowledge and so that you can learn from cookbook authors and artisans and experts and chefs that you know and love or want to learn more about, there are other cookbooks on the planet. I acknowledge that. And this new service, CKBK, will allow you to create a playlist of your favorite new cookbooks and recipes. Right now, it consists of a nice, healthy selection of more than 500 titles. It's completely searchable. It has newer works and classic volumes. It's totally digitized. So some of the books that you might not have known were available digitally will be here. They will offer memberships that come in both a basic free and a premium all-you-can-eat option. Don't you love it? Okay, look for CKVK. And do not touch your dial. Because we are celebrating meaty goodness coming up next. We're talking jerky. Taylor Bedeker is here along with his wife, Tapanya. They have two charcuterie stores that have taken the country by storm. Plus, before the end of the hour, we're relishing in the delicious beauty of Alaska. So stay tuned. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio, and there's more inspiring conversation to feed your soul right after this. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. We're on a mission to find the most exciting places, new experiences, emerging trends, and this next conversation is guaranteed to be delicious. Are you a jerky lover? Oh, because I am. Taylor Bedeker and Tapanya Miller are the masterminds behind San Francisco's beloved Fatty Calf Charcuterie. They are James Beard Award-nominated authors, and they're sharing a new guide to charcuterie, jerky to be specific, perfect for those that love to preserve at home and can, for paleo eaters, for jerky enthusiasts everywhere. 
The book is entitled Jerky, and it is the new and praised guide to the art of making jerky at home. Taylor and Tapania are sharing their globally inspired recipes pulled from Italian, French, Vietnamese, and Mexican culinary traditions. And it is the perfect book for the modern meat enthusiast with approachable recipes that are elevated and exotic. And I am delighted that Taylor Bedecker is here to dish. I'm glad to have you. Hi, Taylor. Hello, Chef Jamie. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Yes, thank you for being here. I can address you as chef as well. We share an alma mater, which makes me very proud. Oh, yeah. Yes. It was uh, a a fabled storied institution. And and a very long time ago, it feels, right? (laughs) Yeah, that's right. I hate to say it. Um, Tell us how you got your start, please, because I do love your story, and I love that you and Tapania, your wife, are working together to continue to elevate the, the charcuterie and the jerky movement. Well, thanks. I'd be happy to. Um, you know, I basically food is the only job I've ever had, and mm-hmm. the only thing that I was ever really interested in doing uh, for an occupation. Um, I met Taponia at the Culinary Institute of America, and we graduated in '98. Um, and at that point, um, I kind of had an inkling that I wasn't going to work in, wasn't going to want to work in restaurants for my entire career. So after graduation, we moved out here to Northern California, where we had both done our externships. Um, and I started working at a few different places. Uh, I worked at a winery for a little while. I did desserts for a little while. Mm. Um, you know, did a little bit of line cooking, and just kind of you know testing the waters and seeing you know seeing what I really liked. Not really thinking that I was going to be looking for something to do for the rest of my life, mm-hmm. but just looking for other you know other uh, alternative uh, you know occupations in in food beyond just working in restaurants. Um, not that there's anything wrong with that. But um, eventually, in 1999, I started working for uh, Marsha McBride at Cafe Rouge, which was in Berkeley. Um, and that just closed this last year. But yes. um, she had, she was, I mean, a, a, one of the, the pre, premier thinkers in terms of, you know, having in-house charcuterie made. Um, she had come from Zuni Cafe in Chez Panisse, mm. and she had a small restaurant in West Berkeley uh, that had an in-house charcuterie. And... Um, I started there in 99. We worked there until late 2003 when we started the Fatted Calf. Um, and during that time, I worked for a little while. Uh, after Tapony and I got married, we were traveling around Europe, and we wound up working for Dario Cicchini for a little bit outside of Florence and wow. Milano. Yes. Um, and that was, that was an amazing experience. Um, but it's, it's, been a, you know, it's, it's been a long, winding, always interesting road. Um, and, you know, it's... Uh, it's one of those things that I'm daily grateful for, you know, even with all the other things that go along with, open, you know, running a business. It's just amazing to be able to make and sell food for a living and to, you know, to do your best to make people happy. So yes, mm-hmm. definitely so. And I think, I mean, your experience laid the foundation for what it is today you've poured, poured your passion into. And I, I think that there is something so important about discussing the the cultural heritage of jerky and Absolutely. charcuterie, that, that its mm-hmm. history is long and that we need to continue to appreciate and perfect the art so that it never dies. Definitely. Um, and that's one of the best things about, I think, about living in California, especially is that we have access to some of the best raw goods in the entire world. Mm-hmm. Um, Isn't that and I true? I think if you have a good foundation, whether it be through, you know, bread baking or wine making, cheese making, charcuterie, you know, all of these things, I think it's really important to have a good understanding of the foundations and the traditions uh, so that you can build from there um, while maintaining, you know, those, uh, those previous traditions. And, you know, at the end of the day, charcuterie and jerky in particular is really about just eliminating food waste. 
um, mm. which is you know something that uh, you know we take very seriously. Yes, and um, you know so it it has not just you know um, culinary and and cultural traditions. You know uh, these are these are items that are you know born out of necessity as well. Right, um, and you know. I think that's a wonderful way to look at uh, mastering the art of jerky. So let's talk some basics because you sure. you say in the book it's easier than we think. Uh, let's select meat first, and just so you know, ooh, brisket. I got to the brisket page and got excited. That oh, yeah. was that was going to be my next. It, it made the cover for a reason. Yes, that was going to yeah. be my next jerky plan. But when it comes to um, selecting a meat, mm-hmm. there are lots of choices. Generally speaking, um, you know the uh, the more middle of the animal, high on the hog type cuts. You know things like pork loin, mm-hmm. ribeye, fillet, things like that. Generally, you know, with the exception of a few of the recipes in this book, you know, mostly we're looking at leg cuts. Um, and there are some loin cuts that are good. Um, but for ones that you're going to want to, like, say if you were going backpacking for three weeks or so, yes. you probably would want to stay away from the brisket and stick with something like bottom round. If we're talking about beef or bison or something like that, um, a leg cut such as bottom round or eye of round is going to be a better choice. Because the leaner it is, the, the longer it will hold, um, you know, after it's been dried out. You know, with something that's got a little bit more fat to it, like a brisket, as delicious as it is, uh, that's the kind of thing that you want to plan on eating within a week or two. Okay. Uh, just because the fat is a bit softer, and that will, you know, it won't last for quite as long as something that's completely lean, like bottom round or eye round. But I think that has a very advantageous component to it. You're talking about lesser cuts as far as cost. Absolutely. are concerned and also they're far more accessible in some places as well. So yeah. I think it really speaks to the preservation of a larger cut and the the cost effectiveness of of waste not want not. And it's also, you know, especially if you're buying directly from a farmer, that's really helping them out too because, you know, uh it's really easy for people who are raising cattle to sell those middle cuts, you know, the the ribeye, the New York, the fillet, things like that. Uh, they're the leg cuts that usually have the hardest time moving. And that's a right. third of the animal. So, hmm. you know, it's, it's really um, helping somebody, you know, uh, utilize the entirety of their production as well. Okay, and then once you've selected the meat, uh, with the grain or against the grain, that is the question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, most of the recipes that are in this book are called for against the grain. Okay. Uh, the reason being is because when you cut against the grain, you shorten the length of those fibers and right. make them a little bit more tender. Less um, chewy. A little bit less chewy, exactly. Okay. So you don't have quite the long fibers to break down as you're chewing it as something that's cut against the grain. Right, and it's important to consider most things, uh, most recipes, most cuts are often suggested to be cut against the grain. That, that's Correct. a pretty universal approach. and so you, Most often, yeah. Yeah, most often. Absolutely. And so you, you look for where the muscle fibers are running, and then you cut the opposite way, essentially. And you really, you do get a a far better tenderness. Taylor, will you stay with me? I don't want to let you go. We have to talk drying methods and we have to get to some recipes um, because I'm a a little bit jerky crazy. um, And I would think you like your friends that way. Absolutely. Definitely so. Good. We're definitely cut from the same cloth. (laughs) That we are. Don't go away. Um, When we come back, we're continuing to dish with Taylor Bedecker and his wife, Tapanya Miller, co authors, uh, co-owners, and co-founders, Fatted Calf Charcuterie in Napa and San Francisco, and the new cookbook release that's all a buzz called Jerky. Oh yes, we are making dried meaty goods and they're so delicious. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Stay tuned. We'll be right back.
delicious, it's divine, it's food and wine. Oh, and jerky too. Chef Jamie Gwen here. We're continuing the culinary conversation with Taylor Bedeker of Fatted Calf Charcuterie, where he and his wife make the ultimate in charcuterie and have mastered the art of jerky. They are sharing their secrets in a newly released book entitled Jerky, The Fatted Calf's Guide to Preserving and Cooking Dried Meaty Goods. And Taylor, we left off um, after salt and spices. Then we need to consider the method by which you will dry the jerky, right? And there are there are multiple choices here. Yeah, there are many different ways to get to where you want to go. You don't have to have a dehydrator, but what is your preferred method for uh, great home cooks? Uh, for great home cooks, you know, if you wanted to just start with just tip, dipping your toe in the water, all mm-hmm. you really need is an oven. Right. You know, you can. Um, I mean, there are different uh, there there are different ovens that have dehydrator attachments. Um, if you have a convection oven, that's perfect. But even if you just have a regular old straight up old school still oven you can make jerky in there how low does the oven have to go because i remember from my days in professional kitchens we made the best oven roasted tomatoes overnight because the oven had a pilot light yeah just slowly <laughs> drawing all those sugars out. yes um yeah if, if you can run it on a pilot uh function that's definitely best if not you know say you make i don't know a batch of banana bread or something and you take you know you take your banana bread out turn the oven off and let it ride in there for a little while. As it cools, it will dry out your sliced and uh, or, or you know arranged jerky that's laid out on 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 mat. Oh, what a great so, idea! Otherwise, you have to go down to one forty, one sixty Fahrenheit. Yeah, one sixty is, is about right. Okay. Um, most most commer- most um, home ovens won't go down quite to one forty, but you have you have a little bit of wiggle room, and you definitely would rather it be a little bit warmer rather than too cool. Okay, I like that you mentioned if you need to you know open the door a, a bit ajar. Yes. of the oven and regulate the heat that way. It's very doable. Absolutely. And especially yes. when you're looking at temperatures that are that low, you're not going to burn anything. You know, the, the only thing you might need to be concerned about is drying it out a little bit too fast. But it's better to have it a little bit more dry than, a li- you know, than not dry enough. Yes. And, you know, you don't want it to be too cool in there. But that's rarely an issue. Then salt. Um, and with no pun intended, I, I say this. The most important element Mineral, right? Um, Good old NACL. There you go. Um, Absolutely. I I think there's a misconception to a lot of jerky that it's so overly salted that you've consumed your sodium intake for the week in a single piece. But it's really not true. I found your recipes very balanced. Well, thank you. I I really appreciate that. That is definitely what we strive for in everything we produce. So um, I I appreciate that. Thank you. Uh, Salt... um, you know, salt has a, a flavor necessity as well as, you know, for, for, for drying out and for, for food safety. Um, you know, what we say in our kitchens is that salt makes food taste good, mm-hmm. makes it taste like what it is. Um, you know, if, if you make a batch of jerky, whether it's out of our book or, some, you know, somewhere else, and it's way too salty, you could either dry it a little bit less next time or use a little bit less salt. That's okay. really, you know... Um, those are the two ways to kind of uh, counteract that a bit. Yeah, that beautiful balance. And then as far as flavor enhancers are concerned, I love that you speak to the fact that um, for any jerky, you and Taponia toast your spices um, to bring out their aroma and those natural oils, right? Because you get a far fuller, bolder flavor. It, much bolder flavor. And, you know, it's uh, this, it, 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 whenever possible, you know, buying, uh, buying small amounts of whole spices and toasting them to refresh them a little bit before grinding them, you're going to wind up with something that just has loads more flavor. Um, recipes that, like these, you know, that, that have only five or six ingredients in them, and there are three or four spices, 
uh, paying attention to those little details and really taking care with them, mm-hmm. it, it adds it, maybe another three to five minutes worth of work, but the end result is much more fantastically flavorful. Um, you know, charcuterie, just like all those other disciplines we we're talking about, cheese making, bread baking, wine making, beer brewing, it, they're all... Whenever something is really successful, it's the culmination of paying attention to a lot of little details along the way. Yes. And toasting and grinding your own spices is one of those little details that you can make for pretty much anything you cook, and to my mind, that will make just something that just sings with flavor. Oh, sings with flavor. <laughs> I like that. Okay, now while, as you say in the book, the USDA would not approve of this next few sentences of conversation... Sun-dried method? The sun is a-coming, yes. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> summer is almost here. And and is that how you, I mean, sun-dry at home on your little ranch of goats? Yeah, and I mean, we've done that. Doggies? I mean, the, the photos that are in the book of us sun-drying, it, it, um, you know, you definitely need a, a bright, hot, clear day. Yes. Um, and it needs to be, you know, it needs to be sliced really thinly and well-seasoned. Um, and as with anything else, if it doesn't smell or taste good before you eat it... Yeah, don't, don't eat, eat it. it. Don't right. eat it. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, uh, you know, and we're not inviting anybody to, you know, to, to try and make themselves sick or anything. But this is definitely, uh, this is an old, old, old preservation method. Yes. You know, I mean, you know, dehydrators and, and home ovens are fairly new invention uh, mm-hmm. in the, you know, the grand scheme of things. So that is how things were done for a long period of time. Granted, you don't want to do this on like a 70 degree day. You want no. it to be super bright out and you want it to be a, a nice long day. Understood. Sometimes, you know, June, July, you know, especially depending on where you live too. And if you're, if you're not sure about the method and you don't think it's going to work, then don't give it a whirl. Then try it another way. But I have to tell you, it makes me, it conjures up ideas and, and culinary memories. It makes me think of like the beauty of sun tea because sun tea tastes like sun tea and you can't duplicate that flavor. So sun, sun dried jerky, right? Mm -hmm. Oh yes. Yeah. Okay. Let's get to some recipes. If you would inspire us now, of course, uh, thank you. Selfishly uh, on my part, I chose what pleased my palate as I uh, slobbered all over the book and the pages. Um, And the photos are beautiful. Um, But I want to make lemongrass beef only because I want to serve it over sticky rice like that on a banana leaf. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. So talk us through, um, this isn't actually a dry rub, but more a wet marinade. It's more of a sticky kind of marinade, exactly, using, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, classic Vietnamese marinating ingredients that go just so well with beef. Mm. Um, You know, the the fish sauce and the lemongrass in there in particular, I think really, uh, you know, gives it a nice bright counterpoint to the rich, uh, you know, beefiness of it. Um, but so, yeah, so basically, you know, you take, you take sliced beef, um, you know, you can use the same cut that you would use for the, um, for the classic bourbon and, and uh, you know, bourbon and molasses marinated jerky. You could use brisket for this one too. Mm. Um, the brisket might actually be a really nice one for that because it's going to have a little fat in it. Mm-hmm. But if you cook it and put it over the sticky rice, it might be kind of nice. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, so it's kind of a sticky marinade comprised of fish sauce and oyster sauce and honey, uh, garlic, uh, sea salt, turmeric, five spice, you know, which is uh, star anise and chili and all other kinds of good stuff. And then just some pounded lemongrass uh, that gives it a, a really nice kind of bright, um, clean flavor. Nice, nice. I was surprised in the book as well that you were sharing your most successful recipe. You sell uh, hundreds and thousands of pounds of this stuff a year and you've been <laughs> making... Make a- lot of that one. Yeah. I know. Bourbon and molasses smoked beef jerky, right? That's what fatted calf is known for. That is 
that is our house jerky, and mm-hmm. that is definitely what we're known for. Um, you know, one of the reasons we like doing books so much is to, to show people how we make everything. Hmm. Um, I like to try and be as open a book, you know, no yes. pun intended, no. as possible. <laughs> All with, cards uh, on the table. Well, with everything, yeah, with everything that I've learned, I don't, I don't see any point in hoarding it for myself. Um, hmm. And, you know, I really, I'm, I'm not too worried about putting that classic recipe in the book. I don't think it's going to bankrupt us. Um, what a fresh this, you approach. Know, thing, you know, this is, it is a lot of work. And, you know, I think, I hope a lot of people will make, um, will, will try their hand at making it on, on their own. But I'm, I'm still pretty certain that people are still going to come in. You know, oh, I'm, sure, I'm sure, sure they are too. Save, mm-hmm. save my portion, please. I'll do that. Yes, sure. please. And I congratulate you and Tapanya, of course, on a, another stellar collection of recipes and insight and very generous sharing of secrets. I really appreciate that. Yes, and well-deserved, well-deserved. Taylor Bedeker and Tapanya Miller are the co-owners and co-founders of the Fatted Calf Charcuterie, opened in 2003 with shops in Napa and San Francisco now. Uh, In addition, you can find their mail-order store on their website. Um, They have been featured in every... uh, high-end culinary magazine. They are culinary heroes, really. And they were on the 100 favorite food items and trends list, of course, for Savour, where they are uh, supposed to be. And you can find the new book entitled Jerky, The Fatted Calf's Guide to Preserving and Cooking Dried Meaty Goods, available on Amazon and everywhere. But if you'd like your signed copy, let Taylor and Tapanya know that you are soon to visit their stores and you will have a prized possession. Then, of course, you can follow their jerky escapades on social at Fatted Calf. And I hope you'll come back as there is new recipe inspiration, Taylor, because I know there are many more books in the works for you and Tapanya. There is more charcuterie to be made. Always. Always. Yeah, and, uh, I'm, I'll come back anytime you'd like to. Oh, thank, thank you. you so much. I appreciate it. And a pleasure to talk with you as well. Thank you again. We do have the greatest culinary thinkers on this show, and there is more fabulous food in your radio right after this. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. I love when new chefs come and sit down at the table to dish. I find it very inspiring and I hope you do too. This is an honest, poignant culinary conversation and talk about an inspiration. When Maya Wilson and her family transplanted to Alaska in 2011, she wasn't sure what to expect. But what she ended up finding was home, and she turned her love for the gorgeous landscapes and the beautifully fresh cuisine into her now hugely popular blog, Alaska from Scratch. 
Maya's blog has grown to be Alaska's premier food blog and is much loved, adored, and lauded in uh, the States, of course, reaching a global audience in the millions each year. She's a food columnist for the Alaska Dispatch News, a chef and a recipe developer, and she joins us live to dish on her first cookbook release. It is an absolutely beautiful book that tells a really, truly heartfelt story. It's called The Alaska From Scratch Cookbook, and I am very glad to have you. Hi, Maya. Hi, Jamie. Thank (laughs) you so much for having me today. Yes, of course. Uh, Congratulations to you. The book is not only an homage to Alaska. It is really a very lovely, honest story of changing one's life for the better. And I'd like to talk about your start as a food blogger in reference to food. So I know from your introduction, you went to the grocery store in search of ingredients for a recipe. You had to scrap the plan because things weren't readily available. And that defeat in the supermarket was the budding idea that took you from isolated to connected in a way, right? Yeah. You know, you have a bit of culture shock when you move from California up to Alaska and suddenly the grocery store is 45 minutes round trip away. You see that cilantro is about 10 times what it was uh, in Mm. price. And so you have to kind of choose your battles. Some things aren't available. Some things aren't in good condition because they've traveled thousands of miles to get here and are all beat up. And some things are just too expensive. And so all of those kind of, uh, all that scarcity really brought out in me something that, this necessity to cook from scratch and to make what I didn't have access to and to kind of create the flavors that I was lacking. You know, the things that I was missing from California, like some beautiful Mexican food and all of, you know, Trader Joe's Yes, and these things that I love and adored and, you know, you just no longer have. And simple things like a Starbucks on every corner that you just take for granted. And, um, you know, I couldn't get my pumpkin spice latte, so I had to make it at home. I loved, by the way, and, and I'll take a step back, the New York Times review of your cookbook was glowing. It talks about the scenic majesty of Alaska, and the book really highlights that as well. But if you were to give us like a virtual tour of the world outside your window right now, what does it look like, and how did your day start? I get up every morning to my coffee pot. It's... <laughs> is set to an alarm and I hear it dripping and I smell that fragrance down the hallway mm. and that's how I wake up every morning. And yesterday as I was doing some writing, I a moose walked straight down our street past my window hmm. and she stopped for some traffic that drove by on the other side of the road. <laughs> you know, and I, I kid you not, I sit here at my dining room table writing and recipe testing in my kitchen and you know you watch a moose walk by right you see an eagle fly over and outside the snow is melting it but we still have kind of these patches of it that are hanging on for dear life right and so Uh that's a little bit of life in alaska so what are you cooking now what's in your fridge at the moment we are going to be making a smoothie and a nice green smoothie with spinach and Mm. bananas and orange juice and you know, those kind of things, because as we spring into summer, uh, we want to get more fruit and vegetables in our diet. So 
that's yes. kind of what I'm looking at right now. Congratulations to you. It is a love story to Alaska, but it, it is such a, a wonderful, honest, poignant, heartfelt story from your kitchen to the rest of us. And I'm thrilled for the success of your blog, Alaska from Scratch. And I'm very delighted to support the Alaska from Scratch cookbook, seasonal, scenic, and homemade. Maya's first cookbook is filled with delicious family-friendly recipes based on the seasonality of Alaska with absolutely majestic photos of a place I know uh, is, is slower and quieter and we would all aspire to visit and to get to know. Uh, there is an abundance of wild berries and hearty soup and moose shepherd's pie strewn throughout. From Alaska from scratch blogger Meyer Wil- Maya Wilson uh, comes this beautifully scenic cookbook celebrating homemade food culture. So please check it out. You can follow her blog, Alaska from Scratch, and the book, The Alaska from Scratch Cookbook, is available now. Maya, I would love to know, um, come post-summer, what you're cooking as the weather changes again. You have an open invitation here, and I hope we can dish again. Oh, I would love that, Jamie. Thank, <laughs> Thank you, you so much. And so that brings us to the end of another hour of inspiring conversation that I hope satiated your appetite. I'm glad that you tuned in and I hope that you'll join me every weekend for delicious conversation in your radio. You'll find podcasts of shows you might have missed on iTunes under Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen, but don't go just yet. It's time for my last bite of the hour. And who doesn't love the snap, crackle, pop of... A Rice Krispie treat, right? Oh yes, your sweet tooth just got sweeter. For a grown-up twist on the classic Rice Krispie treat, I, this past week, ingeniously added Dolce de Leche, the caramelized blend of milk and sugar that's popular in Latin America to melted marshmallows. And oh yes, it was guaranteed the best Rice Krispie treat on my block. No doubt. Now, I took inspiration from a chef friend, in fact, and uh, have permission, in fact, to share the recipe with you. So to make Dolce de Leche Rice Krispie Treats, go to my Facebook, Twitter, Instagram page. On social, you'll find me at Chef Jamie Gwen, and I will share the recipe. It's simply butter and marshmallows, Dolce de Leche, and Rice Krispie cereal. Four wonderful ingredients that meld together for absolute scrumptious sweet sensation. It might not get any better than this. (laughs) I'll see you over the week uh, with more uh, fabulous food and scrumptious inspiration and meet you here on the radio next weekend. I do thank you for listening once again. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off and I hope I made you hungry and that you continue to eat well. (music) 